Welcome back to the Focus on Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Preston. And I'm Jason. Jason, thanks for uh, bearing with me here today. I'm a little sleep deprived with a brand new baby, but you know how that goes, right? Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Congratulations are in order and definitely uh, don't look forward to sleeping anytime soon, especially with three <laughs> of them in the house. You're right. Well, despite that, we still had a great interview today with Dr. Jason Lusk of Purdue University. Yeah, Dr. Lusk is the director of the Center for Food Demand Analysis and Sustainability. And one major thing that they do there is they survey consumers monthly and they track the results of those surveys over time. And some of the questions they ask and some of the responses are very, very interesting. Yeah, super interesting, Jason. I also thought it was interesting to hear Dr. Lusk's perspective on inflation and, and how inflation is infecting the food prices consumers are facing. I should also mention Dr. Lusk is an author, a renowned author. He's written books such as Unnaturally Delicious, which is a book I'm really excited to read here over the next couple of weeks. You and me both, President. I just got my copy. Looking forward to reading it. And also, I think you're right about his perspective on inflation and, and where we're headed. So be sure to stick around till the end of the podcast when we ask him a couple of questions about where we're going. And, and his, his views as an economist, I think, are very relevant. So without further ado, let's jump right into the conversation with Dr. Lusk. Jason, welcome to the podcast. To kick things off, could you tell us a little bit about your background and what you're up to now? Yeah, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be on. My day job, I'm a food and agricultural economist. I currently serve as a professor and the head of the agricultural economics department at Purdue University, but I've been around a bit. I grew up in West Texas, um, grew up uh, hoeing weeds in cotton fields, and uh, that was a strong motivation to go to college and get a degree, which is what I did. I have an undergrad degree in, in food technology and food science and a PhD in uh, agricultural economics from Kansas State. And uh, over the last 20 years, I've been on, been on faculty at Mississippi State, Oklahoma State, and now Purdue. This is my second time at, at Purdue. So it's, uh, it's nice to have a bit of that ag production background coupled with some of the food uh, processing knowledge. And uh, it's, it's been a great career to be a part of food and ag and bring, hopefully bring some economic insights to folks. I spent some time hoeing weeds in soybean fields growing up. I think cotton fields are, in Texas are probably even a little bit worse in the middle of the summer. I remember some very, very hot days that, that, that felt like the road would never end. <laughs> yeah, I believe it. So you're currently also the head of the Center for Food Demand Analysis Sustainability. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that's a relatively new effort. It's been underway for just about a year. I um, feel very fortunate the university here at Purdue made some significant investments, uh, reinvestments in a plant science initiative. And and I put in my two cents that if they're going to do that, we should also understand what it is consumers are wanting out of some of our, our crop breeding and development efforts. And so this, you know, it's a combination of efforts, but it's really a way to try to get a better handle on what, what's happening in our food system, partly motivated by some of the challenges we experienced during COVID and then the need that that episode showed for timelier information about what's happening in our food system, what consumers want out of our food system. So if you can, you can probably Google CFDAS, that's the Center for Food Demand Analysis and Sustainability at Purdue. We have a whole set of dashboards that we've de developed. We're trying to make data more alive and more digestible uh, by the public. And then I think we'll talk about some of this as we go today, if I had to guess. And that, that's a, an ongoing survey that we've started in January. We've been running that monthly, about 1,200 U.S. food consumers across the country. And again, a way to just take a pulse on what consumers are thinking about the food system and allows us 
to have a mechanism to rapidly respond to emerging events and, and understand what consumers are thinking about that. That's really, really interesting. And, and I think, I mean, it seems somewhat obvious that you would want to have the pulse of consumers to help people make decisions about, about the food supply and maybe even um, if, if there's some misconceptions out there, maybe address some of those misconceptions. Is, but that wasn't existing before. That was something that, you know, over the last year or so, you guys just started. We did. So actually, in one of my previous uh, lives at, at, uh, at Oklahoma State, when I was there, I ran a, a similar monthly survey for over five years. That one, just, just due to the nature of where I was at and funding opportunities, was focused primarily on meat demand issues. And, I, you know, I think that was a, a, an effort that got a lot of attention and seemed to have a lot of interest among the industry. And so, it, so it's not entirely new effort, but it is new in the sense that it, it's focused this one a little differently on on some sustainability issues and on um, some a variety of policy issues food food security issues so overall attitudes and feelings about our food system so the focus is a little different and i think one of the motivations there is I, I you know i've done a lot of surveys over my career i've done a lot of analysis with other kinds of, of data too including experiments and grocery store scanner data but i think there's a, a reason a good reason to be skeptical of surveys. But one of the things I think that's advantageous about a, a tracking survey is that even if people are, you know, giving you answers that are influenced by social desirability bias or hypothetical bias or whatever, or they're just plain lying to you. Um, as long as that remains fairly constant over time, then then the changes, the trends in the measures are meaningful. And so even if, if we can disagree about the absolute level or that, you know, the percent of people that said agree or disagree to a, a given question a given month, I think it's more informative sometimes to look at those changes that are happening over time and that you can only get through a tracking sort of survey. That's a really interesting perspective because I, I hadn't thought about that. I, I was going to ask you how you ensure, and, and I'm sure you do some things to try to help the data be reliable. You know, like you said, if, if a certain amount of people or a certain percentage are probably going to lie or, or give you incorrect answers, but is there a way that you can also try to minimize that? Absolutely. That, that's been a big part of my academic career over the last 20 years is trying to get people to answer survey questions in a way that better reflect what they'll actually do. I think one challenge with a lot of survey questions is there's no constraint. You know, you can, do you want this? Um, will you buy it? It's easy to say yes. There's no cost to you on, on a survey. And so I tend to favor questions where you make people make trade-offs. So you can't have everything among the set of things, which would you choose, for example, or how would you rank these things? And these kind of choice questions or something with some constraint on, on your ability to say that everything is great or everything is terrible seem to do a better job predicting actual behavior. Not perfect, but, uh, but a lot better than just sort of open-ended questions. And um, there's a variety of tricks and techniques that exist um, as well. So one, for example, that I think is intuitive to a lot of people, particularly if you're asking questions that have a real, where well, there's some strong social norms. Let's say, for example, like cage-free eggs. You know, do you buy cage-free eggs? Would you, pay, would you be willing to pay a premium for cage-free eggs? That's something a lot of people, even if you don't do it, you probably feel a little bit of social pressure. Like you don't want to say, well, I'm a person who doesn't care about animal welfare or what have you. So there's, there's some social pressure. There may be even some pressure to feel like you want to please the, the person asking the question. Uh, they must think it's important if they're asking me, right? So um, one technique is instead of asking people whether they're willing to do it or they're willing to pay is instead ask what they think somebody else is willing to pay or willing, yeah. uh, you know, willing to buy. 
and part of the thought process there is you care about making yourself look good, uh, but you don't always care about making other people look good. And so you can remove that that social pressure aspect of the question. We've got a few studies where we we find that 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 kind of questioning about other people's behavior can do a better job predicting um, behavior in, in a retail setting, particularly on these kinds of products and goods where there's this sort of social pressure dimension. But the, that's one of you know dozens of techniques that that we've developed over the years, and, and we're not, of course not the only ones. Uh, we we steal from psychology and uh, other fields that, that have also been working on these kinds of topics. I was going to say you're an economist, but it sounds like there's quite a bit of psychology involved too, and in, in just getting those questions just right. Yeah, you know, economic, you know, almost certainly heard of behavioral economics, which is a bit of a merger of economics and psychology. And in, in I think over the course of the last couple of decades, you know, economics has become a lot more behavioral. Um, we still have our, our economic theories we think are, are strong and good, uh, but but they're not perfect. And, uh, and taking the foibles of individual decision-making into account, I think can help us understand behavior uh, a bit better at times. To find respondents for your survey, do you just call random numbers? Is there, is there some other system that you use? Yeah, there, there is no perfect system. And, and as a good economist, I'll say there's no solutions, only trade-offs. So um, the approach we tend to use, and, it, and it's one driven partly by cost constraints, is there are a number of third-party companies, uh, vendors, who maintain large samples of people who have agreed to participate in online surveys. And we, we contract with one of those to conduct our survey. It, you know, the upside is it's nationwide. You can get a large sample of consumers. We can survey 1,200 people in a couple of days. Um, it's an online format. We, we do all the programming on our end in terms of what the survey looks like. And so that gives you a lot of, you can show people whatever you want, want to show. Um, there's a lot of flexibility about that. The downside, of course, is who are these people that have agreed to take surveys? They do, they do get uh, some remuneration, but it's not a lot, maybe a dollar or so to complete a survey. And are they really representative of the, of the country as a whole? So, um, you know, one technique that we use is something called weighting. We basically force our sample to look like the U.S. population in terms of age and education. So, for example, if we don't have enough high educated people relative to the U.S. population, the people in our sample that are high education, we count their responses a little bit more so that they, you know, our sample looks like the U.S. population. And this is a pretty standard practice. Any poll that you see on the nightly news, uh, for example, who, who, you know, Joe Biden's, um, approval rating or who, who's going to win the Senate race in any given uh, location. All those polls use use weighting to, to make their samples look like the U.S. population. Um, the gold standard approach is uh, what you described is, is uh, where every person in the population has an equally likely chance of being in your sample. Um, and uh, traditionally that had been done by um, by mail surveys that those are very rarely done these days in part because of cost and also because people won't respond to them anymore. And, and also, you know, phones, random digit dialing is an approach that's used. There used to be a lot of regulations about the inability to use that approach with cell phones. Um, and uh, of course, if you're like me, if you get a random, you know, number coming up on your cell phone, you're not going to answer it either. So all survey approaches have had some real challenges. Response rates have, have, significantly fallen off and in every even the gold standard government surveys um, have had a really hard time um, with with response rates meaning getting the people you've actually contacted to to respond to your survey um, so um, 
so there, there are a variety of approaches. And I think, you know, the, the nightly news polls are tend to be phone calls that they make to people. Sometimes they don't always disclose it. Sometimes they're robo calls. It's a robot on the other end saying, press one if you're going to vote for this person. Um, you know, the downside with that is if you have nuanced questions, you're asking people to make trade-offs, uh, rank things, that's much harder to do on the phone. And so I, I tend to favor some of these approaches that, that you know, you can show people scenarios. And, um, and um, again, I think that it, at the end of the day, the proof is in the pudding. Can you predict behavior uh, in a grocery store? How well do the answers you're collecting correspond with reality? And like I said, I, you know, we're not, we're never perfect, but I think we have a, a number of studies that suggest we can do a pretty good job predicting behavior in a variety of settings. I could get pretty deep in the weeds in this because this is pretty fascinating to me, but I just have one last question regarding setting up surveys and, and, and looking at polls and poll responses. So for just a general consumer that's out there and they pick up a newspaper and they read, oh, you know, 75% of Americans think this. Is there something that they can do to tell if that data is somewhat accurate or not? Is there kind of a telltale sign? You know, do you have some rules of thumb to tell yeah. if the data is trustworthy or not? I mean, the first one is sample size. How many people were uh, were surveyed, interviewed? And, and that will also be reflected. Most polls will report a margin of error, which is sampling error. That's the error that comes about simply because you didn't survey every single person in the population. And that's directly proportional to sample size to how many people that you interview. So the, the fewer the number of people you interview, the larger that that sampling error margin of error is going to be. So that's the first thing. And almost all polls will, will report that. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, even if we back up a couple of elections ago, national elections, you know, there, uh, you know, a lot of times you'll see people say, well, the polls were wrong. But, you know, if you're within the, the margin of error, the one or plus or two, you know, plus or minus two or three percent, three percent is a pretty standard amount that, you know, that basically just means if you, you know, redid that survey again, there's a 95% chance you're going to get an error, an answer that's um, plus a three or minus three from what you measured before. So, you know, when you're within that margin of error, there's a fair amount of chance involved in, in which direction, particularly if you're close to that, say, 50-50 mark. So sample size is one or that margin of error one, but margin of error is only one kind of error. There's a lot of other errors. And, and from what people tend to report in those polls, it's really hard to tell. Like you do want to know who, who are these people? Did was it at least some some kind of random approach? Like you know, if they surveyed, um, you know, I don't know, mem members of the, the Democratic Party, or is this a survey of you know Republican Party members? You know, obviously that's sort of a biased sample. Most people yeah. aren't going to do something quite that crazy, but you do see it sometimes uh, on issue polls um, that they maybe uh, interview members of an organization or something like that. So I'd be very skeptical of that. Um, and then sometimes reputation, you know, who, who, are, who is the organization doing the polling? What's their reputation for, for doing high quality polls and that, that do a good job predicting? Sometimes that's kind of hard to tell over time, but there's honestly not a lot you can tell from the, the eight point font that's below the, the polling result that can tell you a lot about quality other than the, that margin of error and sampling error. I'm sure we probably all have gotten mailers like it, it's usually really just a charity. Um, they're, they're looking for money or whatever, but yeah, right. you know, those questions yeah. are very biased and <laughs> you can tell when you get them. So I, I don't usually see those results in the national media, but um, you know, no. you, you obviously can set up a poll to, to make it come back the way you want it to come back. Mm -hmm. No, that's right. I think people are sensitive to, 
to how questions are framed and worrying. And so, uh, you know, one thing we'll do, and it's an advantage of having a tracking survey like we have now, is if we're worried that we're getting a result because of a particular phrasing or, or you know, that we're using, we'll just try it a different way, you know, or, or we'll split our sample, ask half the question one way and half the other way, just to make sure we're not producing an anomalous result. Some, sometimes that stuff does matter. So I looked at your recent polling results on your on your website, and there's just some really interesting things. And I'd like to I'd like to talk about a couple of those things because I think there's a, a few instances when maybe and, and you can help us out with this, but consumer perception it appears is not always 100% reality. For instance, you had a question that food with deoxyribonucleic acid is unsafe to eat, and 26% of the people said yes, that's true, and 16% said no, that's not true, and you had a big number. 58% that, that didn't agree or disagree, but we all know that DNA is in all food. And so if, if we weren't to eat that, we wouldn't survive too long. And so there's obviously misperceptions out there, right? So, and, and that's probably why you asked that question to see if there's any inroads in educating consumers maybe. And, and I don't want to make it sound like consumers have no clue about anything. I don't want to sound condescending. I, you know, I want to be careful here, but obviously there are things out there that, that maybe people they see some marketing, they hear their friend on Facebook, whatever it might be, passing something along and they and they maybe don't fully understand it and they continue to go along with that. I mean, can you kind of speak to that just a little bit? Yeah, that question came about because of a question I had asked probably almost 10 years ago now. You, you probably remember, uh, you know, there was a period where many of the states were having state ballot initiatives around mandatory GMO labeling in mm-hmm. in you know, many of the proponents of that policy were pointing to, to polls that suggested 80, 90% of consumers favored mandatory labeling of GMOs. And, you know, my sense was that there was no, you know, that probably wasn't very, first of all, assault laws weren't matching up with the votes that were happening in some of the states where, where it was much tighter. Uh, the other thing was, I thought, you know, it was a question that didn't really involve much thought or cost on the consumer. And I, I, sort of on a whim, I, I suggested a version of a question. We put it on, on a survey that asked, do you fan, favor mandatory labeling of foods that contain DNA? And also 80 to 90% of people said yes to that question. So it may, kind of makes you take a step back and say, what's really, what's really going on when we're asking people these questions? And it probably wasn't about GMOs per se, but it but there's a, a well-known book by uh, uh, Daniel Kahneman. He wanted, he's a psychologist, who, but he won a Nobel Prize in economics. Uh, his, one of his books is Thinking Fast and Slow, and that summarizes a lot of his body of, of work. But there's a segment in there where he talks about these kinds of questions. And he said, one, one thing people do psychologically is if you get a really hard question, sometimes what you do is you substitute in your mind an easier question and you answer that one. Hmm. So, you know, one thought is perhaps what people are doing is they're, they're hearing the question, do you want mandatory labeling of GMOs? But in, in their mind, they're saying, do you want free information about something that you don't know much about? Sure, why not? <laughs> you know. Um, so I think that's part of what's going on. And I think I've done a lot of studies about GMOs uh, you know, and, and other crop breeding technologies over the years. And if I had to summarize you know, what, what we found from that body of research, it's largely that consumers know very little about these technologies. So one way I interpret this too is to say, and it gets to your point about, you know, it's this, the point is not to be condescending to consumers, but it is, it is actually rational for people not to know everything about everything. We can't know everything about uh, all the modern world that we live in. And so we rely on others. And sometimes we, 
we outsource our decision-making to others. So if you reframe that question, say again about GMO labeling, instead ask, who do you want to make this decision? Do you, do you want it to be decided by ballot initiative or do you want it to be decided by say FDA or USDA? Uh, most people, like three quarters of people will, will choose the FDA or USDA. Or if you say, do you think this should be decided by the views of the average American or by experts? Like 75% will say the experts. Now I'm, I'm a big believer in consumer sovereignty and, um, and individual decision-making, but what it says is even given the choice, people will defer to the experts on topics where they don't know much about. And you and I probably do that in everyday life. I hire an accountant. If I run into a problem with my taxes, I can't understand, or I go ask for advice uh, from a, 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 a professional if I, if, to get, give me advice about retirement, those sorts of things. So when there are topics that are complicated, we don't know much, we rationally turn to others and defer to others. And I think that that's certainly one of these things that happens sometimes on, on these topics that are complicated. So back to the original question we now have on our, our survey about a DNA, that question originated from some of this background that I mentioned to you before. And, and it's a way just to sort of, I think, signal people's uncertainty about unfamiliar sounding things in food. Um, and it does reflect probably certain knowledge of, of people uh, and maybe back to survey quality issues, we do have some questions in surveys. We call them trap questions that, that check for attention. Mm. Um, like there are some very simple questions just, that just say things like, if you're reading this question, please click uh, somewhat agree or, or you know, somewhat disagree. <laughs> and and you, we have a couple of those questions embedded in the survey. And if you miss a couple of those, we'll, we'll remove you from the sample yeah. just to make sure that, that you're not just clicking you know, the middle or what, whatever you're doing. Um, so, so I don't think those answers are just random clicking because we get rid of those inattentive respondents uh, through some other means. But it, I think it does re reveal both a lack of knowledge and understanding, this kind of chem chemophobia, anything chemical sounding people are afraid of. And then, you know, just again, an overall probably uh, lack of knowledge. So another question, and this is maybe a little bit more, um, the DNA question is somewhat just seeing people's perceptions and maybe uh, knowledge level about the topic, but you have a question there about local food, whether that's better for the environment or not. And 63% say yes, 12% say no. So that's pretty overwhelming that, you know, most people think that's better for the environment. And I guess my question for you is, is, and maybe there's no easy answer, but is local food better for the environment? <laughs> yeah. Um, again, no, no easy answers uh, to that question. And it, I think to your point, and people sometimes, particularly on questions that relate to, relate to politics or how you would vote, you know, a response I get from people a lot of times is, well, consumers don't know enough to answer that question. No, it, that's right. Um, I'm, this is not, these are not measures of what we should do, but they are a measure of where people are at. And so if you want to have a conversation with people, this is where they're starting from and where you're going to have to approach them on these conversations. And, and per public perceptions, right or wrong, do shape uh, what's possible both in the marketplace, but also politically as well. So e even if perceptions aren't entirely accurate, I think it's sometimes useful to know where people are at and how that varies across different kinds of people, demographics and so forth. On the question of local foods, this is one I've written a lot about over the years. Um, you know, I think the best way to say it is localness has very little relationship with environmental impact. Um, you can imagine situations where local is better, but you can also easily imagine situations where local is not. Uh, environment often gets wrapped up in uh, or summarized in, in carbon emissions, for example. And I think the 
average layperson thinks, well, food that's local hasn't been transported as far. And as a result, they're not using as, as much fuel. And so therefore it must be lower carbon emissions. So better for the environment. And that's probably false for most products. And the reason is most of the carbon impacts occur where the food is being produced. About some estimates suggest about 80% occurs from the production phase. What that says to me is you want to produce food where it can be most efficiently grown. Mm -hmm. And the overall carbon impact of the transportation part is fairly small in the grand scheme of things. And particularly things like ocean shipping are, are very, um, you know, very efficient and, and don't involve a lot of carbon emissions. You know, think about it. We, we were shipping things across the ocean before we were using fossil fuels to, to propel us across the ocean. And, and so it's not that, that transportation doesn't matter, but it's that it's a small piece of the overall puzzle. And you, we want to pay attention to, to other parts of that production process. And I think it's also a, a, an issue of scale. You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big believer that productivity is a very key measure of sustainability and as a result of that environmental impact. And so if we can produce more food, more bushels, more tomatoes, whatever on, a, on an acre of land, um, that that has benefits because uh, it's going to lower the carbon emissions per unit produced. So um, if you if you if you can get that production in an area that's very efficient, where you can have high yields, um, that that in my mind often has a, a real environmental benefit in terms of land savings and other resource savings. So I tend to focus much more on efficiency of production than I do on you know localness per se. Not to berate this point, but it, you know it is a topic that I get asked about a lot. Is you know if you're eating a tomato in the winter in New York or Quebec or you know wherever, you know that and it's local. How was that grown? Almost certainly greenhouse that was heated with fossil fuels. Like that is not you know in terms of carbon, a carbon efficient you know production. Now it doesn't mean you can't shouldn't do it. It's probably it could be tasty, uh, but it's not you know um, a low carbon impact uh, product even though it's local. I think those are really interesting points. And it's a really interesting concept about, you know, obviously the economies of scale and and if you can produce something more efficiently, you can probably ship it a little bit farther and and mm -hmm. still have a lower impact. And and there's places where things are, you know, you alluded to this. It's a lot better to grow corn in the Midwest, for example. I mean, we're very set up to grow corn here than to try to grow it in some place where, where it's much less efficient. You maybe only get 120 bushels an acre instead of 250. And, and same thing with vegetables. You know, there's places where vegetables grow very well and, and, and it's good if they concentrate on that. I think you made an interesting point too about the shipping um, and, the, and the ships. That's kind of the original green power. There's wind farms going all over the place here. And, and those ships were wind powered for, for hundreds of years before we started <laughs> they, developing. They were, I think one example that um, it was an academic paper that's related to what you're discussing is there was a study about uh, lamb consumption. And this was in the UK. And whether it was, you know, required more energy use to consume lamb that was grown locally in the UK or from uh, New Zealand in, in Australia. And it turns out it was actually just in terms of energy use, more efficient to consume that land, lamb from New Zealand than it was for the local to consume the locally grown stuff in the UK. And that seems crazy because that's over 10,000 miles away. <laughs> but part of the reason why that's the case is, you know, countries like New Zealand are just naturally endowed with... Um, the ability to produce a lot of grass that you know can feed uh, can feed uh, sheep, and then you put that 
put that lamb on, on an ocean vessel and that's a pretty efficient way to get it to you. And, and so that's just, you know, again, one of those examples, it, it, you know, it, and it's, it's a core economic concept of comparative advantage and, you know, the amount of sunlight, the type of soil you have, all those things are comparative advantages that give certain regions of the country or the world an efficiency in producing certain kind of crops that just don't exist in other places. So I have a couple more questions from your survey. They're all very interesting, I think, very interesting results. You had a question whether organic food is more nutritious than non-organic food. And 46% of the consumers thought it was more nutritious and 26% believe that it's not in your recent results. So is that a misconception? Is organic food more nutritious or better for you? This is an area where there have been a number of what they call meta-analyses. These are studies where they combine the results of many other studies, kind of like a large lit review. And by and large, I'd say there's very little difference in organic and non-organic. There's been a few studies that, that can find some small differences and some small micronutrients. Um, but, you know, if you care about vitamin A, vitamin D, you know, number of calories, amount of protein, sort of the macronutrients, there's, there's very, very little difference in organic and non-organic. I think you know, such that it's hard to imagine that any differences exist have any substantive health consequence. You know, what matters a lot more is, you know, what's the breed of the crop that you used? Uh, you know, what's the plant variety that you use? Those things matter a lot and certainly can influence um, nutrient levels. You know, if on, the, on the animal side of things, um, you know, if, if a grass-fed you know, beef cow will have slightly different fat profile, for example, than a grain fed animal. Uh, but that's not really because it's organic. It's because of the feed that's used. Um, and, you know, again, I think it, even though we know there are probably some differences between a fully, you know, grass fed um, steer or heifer and a grain fed one, there's also the question of, is it is it enough of a difference to have any meaningful health impact on the consumer? And I think that's a slightly different question. So I'd say by and large, that's a misperception uh, by most consumers that there's any substantive uh, nutritional difference. I did, you know, word that slightly different because some people, you know, there's question about, you know, does the use of, of uh, different kinds of pesticides have different health consequences? And I think, you know, there the research is, is a bit, is a bit different because there's certain pesticides aren't allowed in uh, organic agriculture. And so, uh, you know, I won't claim to be an expert on the toxicology <laughs> of different, different pesticides. So that, that question probably has more nuance around it than the question simply of nutrition. Yes, it's definitely, I mean, all these things, it, it, there's not necessarily a simple answer in a lot of cases. I mean, that one's maybe a little bit more straightforward from the nutrition standpoint anyway, but maybe there's other impacts that you would want to consider. And, and there, there are reasons why people want to buy organic and, and not trying to denigrate those choices. Um, but, but you did mention grass-fed versus grain-fed beef, and, and, and you had a question there about that. And this is super interesting to me because growing up, you know, I always knew for 100% uh, fact that grain-fed beef tastes better. I mean, I, I think that was, you know, everybody knew that. I, you know, I say knew or thought we knew that 30 years ago, but now 44% of consumers in your survey said, yes, grass-fed tastes better than grain-fed. And only 16% said that grass-fed did not taste better than grain-fed. So that's really interesting because that's a complete opposite from what it probably the survey results would have been 20 years ago, I'm guessing it. And, and you're probably seeing that trend upwards. What's the reason behind this perception? Is it, you know, if, if you do blind taste tests, do people say that the grass-fed tastes better or 
No, just yeah, to your point, if you, we, you know, I've worked with a number of colleagues over the years who have done precisely that. If you put people in a blind taste test, it's probably two thirds prefer grain fed and maybe a third prefer grass fed. So there, there is a segment of the population out there that does prefer the taste of grass fed, but, but most people prefer grain fed beef. And, um, but again, most people, those are in blind taste tests. <laughs> and so um, yeah, I think part of what's happening here, it, and this goes back a little bit to the organic question as well. There are these kind of halos that happen. So there's this perception that grass fed is healthier. Maybe it has some animal welfare connotation in addition to health connotation and environmental connotation. And so it spills over into influencing all our beliefs, including our, our beliefs about taste as well. The other thing that's, that's a bit strange is um, sort of philosophical in a way is how, how your body, you know, how, when you taste something, what your mind thinks it is does influence the taste of it. And there's been some studies where you, you put people in a brain scanner, for example, in let's say you're, you're feeding them, there's a study about this, Coke versus Pepsi. And, and again, there's some fraction of the population prefers Coke, some fraction that prefers Pepsi. Um, and if you do it in a blind taste test, um, you know, there's one set of preferences, but if you tell people, hey, this one's Coke, and you give it to them, you know, these brain scan studies show that your brain really responds differently when you're, when you know the brand name of that, of that Coke, and it does, it, we, or the brand name of the drink that you're being fed. And it, so it does raise these kind of weird questions like, um, you know, can, can your beliefs about something cognitively affect the sort of physical dimension of, of how something really tastes. And I, I think it does. I mean, you could take the same, say hamburger uh, and put it say in a restaurant that's unclean and, and a, not a very nice environment, or you put it in one that's a very nice table, white tablecloth restaurant. And that environment that's around you might influence the way you think this burger is tasting, even though you know presumably they're exactly the same. And I think that's probably some of what's going on here is there's a, a, a halo effect that's happening that influences a whole set of beliefs right or wrong and then there's also this this thing that happens where you know your perceptions do in, in fact influence sometimes how you think things taste that that aren't that don't show up when you're in a blind taste test in that pepsi coke study and, and maybe you don't have this information but did they uh give people pepsi and tell them it was coke and vice versa and yeah. how, how did they I can't remember that? that off the top of my head they should have if they didn't yeah. <laughs> So Jason, do you have any advice for the farmers listening who maybe want to correct the narrative and have an impact on, you know, some of the perceptions that are out there? When I look at the farmers, it seems like a lot of the consumers are getting these narratives from platforms like TikTok, you know, things like these social media platforms that farmers really aren't engaged in for the most part. Any advice on how to get the story out there? Yeah. Well, first off, most people don't aren't going to respond well to an approach that says, well, you're just wrong. <laughs> you know, let me tell you uh, why grain fed tastes, it really does taste better than grass fed. Um, uh, so I think I tend, you know, tend to approach these in a couple of different ways is one is we know people are more influenced by, by sources they trust and by people they trust. So the first step is do, do they trust, does this person trust you? Um, do they agree that, that we share a set of values that, that you're a person that, that can be dealt with in a meaningful, you know, in a trustworthy way. So, you know, on these issues, say organic and health, I think a starting point is to say, do, do we both agree that healthiness matters, that we both care about health and, and on the local food thing, that we both care about environmental impacts. Let's start there. 
and then once we both establish, okay, you care about the environment, I care about the environment, you care about health, I care about health. Now let's have a conversation about what's the best way to achieve those ends. So that we've, we've established neither one of us are evil here. We're both trying to reach those. Um, and, and then I think it's, it's more about, um, you know, starting from that place of trust and then, then starting to have some of those more nuanced conversations. The other one I think too, is sometimes you, you know, people, I think particularly in the production ag side, take a very extreme position. Like, you know, we, we, we're not going to be able to feed the world if we did everything organically. Okay. Well, that, that's probably true um, in some dimensions, but I wouldn't phrase it that way. Nobody, again, nobody likes being told what they can't do. I, uh, maybe it's coming through that I have two teenagers at home, but um but in, instead, I think a better way to frame is what are the, you know what are the trade offs here? We can go to a, a more fully organic production system, but what does that mean? You know, we're probably going to need more land. Uh, we're going to need probably food prices will be a bit higher, um, and and that's now it's a choice. You know, which of those two outcomes do you want? And it, it may have some, let's say, particular environmental or health benefits related to pesticides, uh, or not. But um, but then, then it's a choice. It's not me saying you have, we have to do it this way. <laughs> um, so that's sort of how I tend to approach it. Same with grain fed versus grass fed. Okay, you, you could have the grass fed, but it's going to take longer for those animals to be raised to, to a, you know, a slaughter weight that has an impact on cost, that has an impact on environment. It's not a, you know, it's not an either or, but it's a, what are the consequences? What are the trade-offs? And then, you know, put the ball in somebody's court to make the decisions they want to do. Um, and I think it's one reason I, I'm pretty um, um, laissez-faire with regard to what people want to do with their money in the marketplace. Even if people have, you know, perceptions I don't agree with, fine, it's your money. <laughs> Spend it how you want to. Yep. I get a little more concerned about our public policy discussions because those are those are decisions that affect everybody, um, and and particularly with regards to food when we do things that influence the price of food, that tends to disproportionately affect lower income households. And, and often those are the households that aren't very involved in these debates. Um, they don't have the money or the resources to influence the, the politics and the discussion. So they tend to care a lot more about price um, and the impacts on their budget. And as, and as a result, you know, I think they get, I'm, I'm a lot more worried about sort of the policy side of some of these debates than I am the food marketing side. Yeah. No, that's great. You mentioned price. That kind of dovetails with one question I wanted to sneak in real quick. Um, curious, you know, we're at the time of recording, we're here early July 2022. CPI numbers are crazy high. Inflation is impacting consumers across America. So from your survey, how is inflation impacting American shoppers over time? What trends are you seeing? Mm -hmm. And then maybe do you have any sort of a, for, of, of a forecast looking forward? <clears throat> Yeah, uh, you're right. It's, you know, we're, we're seeing food price inflation that we haven't seen since the 70s. So it's pretty remarkable in a lot of ways. Uh, early on, I think back in um, April, uh, March and April, we were asking some questions about to consumers about how are you responding to these higher food prices? At that time, we, we gave people a number of options, you know, that were like, I'm, I'm choosing to spend less on other things, or I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm using more more coupons or spending more time shopping for better prices online. But at that time, the most common answer was nothing. I haven't changed anything. <laughs> and um, in, that won't stick around forever, particularly if we enter into a recessionary period. I think that this gets to like what have been some of the causes of inflation. It's obviously multifaceted, a bunch of different drivers. But one of the drivers has just been macroeconomic policy. We pumped a bunch of money in the economy. Um, savings rates were really high. And at least 
in aggregate, people had a lot of money. And so even though food prices were increasing, it really wasn't causing people to have to tighten their belt buckles just yet. But I think we're getting to that point now and in, we're starting to see it in our surveys too, people being a little more price responsive, a little more price sensitive. And we're seeing people's expectations of inflation increasing as well. That's one of the questions we measure on our survey. What, what do you think is, is, is happening? Um, it's also the case, like if you ask people how, how much they think prices have increased over the, the previous year, those are actually lower than the headline uh, government statistics numbers, which means that people have been finding ways to economize in some ways. They haven't felt it quite in the way that the government statistics suggest um, that that they maybe have or, or should have, should have felt it. Um, so, you know, I think again, this is a question that relates back to the, what I mentioned before about low versus high income. We another question we ask on the survey is what's most important to you when you buy food, and those lower income households are much more likely to say price is a is a major driver. Every income income category puts price near the top. But it's even a bigger part of the decision-making criteria for lower-income households. So that, that's where the hit is. But we're not seeing a big uptick just yet in things like food insecurity or any of those kinds of things yet. But you know, my fear would be if we enter into a recessionary period where incomes get tighter, that that you know, if you have an, a recession, incomes uh, fall at the same time that that we're having this inflation. That that could be much more problematic than we're seeing at the moment. Uh, forecasting, boy, if I was uh, had a crystal ball, I'd probably be a, in a different job than being a professor. But, um, you know, I think there's some signs to suggest we may see some slowing down uh, for a couple of reasons. One, the Fed has started, Federal Reserve has started increasing interest rates, which is a way of pulling some money back out of the economy. So that'll, that'll have some effect. And then we're also starting to see some commodity prices decline here in the, the past few weeks. Really, we've seen some significant declines in both ag commodity prices, but also in energy prices as well. And, and that'll, that will eventually filter through to food prices, not immediately. So I wouldn't be surprised. So I think in a, in, you know, shortly we'll have the latest inflation numbers for the month of June. I suspect those will still probably be high, but maybe going into July and August numbers, you know, hope, hopefully, fingers crossed, we, we'll probably start to see those come down a bit. Well, yeah, we definitely share that hope. I mean, I mean we all do that that prices will come down a little better or the inflation will slow. And when we think about that, that can kind of be cause for pessimism just a little bit. Maybe when we think about inflation and think about the future, there's always some trepidation. But also everybody involved in ag, I feel like it's pretty much really an optimist at heart. I mean, you know, farmers plant something in the spring with the hope that five months later, they'll be able to get a crop and sell it and, and go on to the next year. So I think that really farmers are all optimists. And for you yourself, what what is exciting to you? We always like to ask about the future of ag. Yeah, well, uh, maybe it's something we can talk about on a future podcast, but I, I wrote a book that's now five years old called Unnaturally Delicious, and it really was to try to capture some of the optimism I have about our food sector. And, and so some optimistic things on my side are really the innovation that I see. I mean, I have a good fortune of working in a, a big land-grant university that has a lot of investments in uh, ag and food research. So I see colleagues working all kinds of amazing new foods and technologies really trying to address our, our you know, big, the big problems of the day, whether it's things like sensors on farms that can help, you know, make it, help us make more judicious use of our inputs, um, help make farms more profitable or on the food side of things. Um, you know, I have colleagues working on the, say the gut, the gut microbes and, you know, uh, understanding that a little, little bit better that we can, you know, maybe have personalized nutrition 
uh, or you know, even though I think some of my farm friends get a little bit nervous about the lab-grown meat sort of stuff, I think it's a really interesting innovation and in technology if we can continue to find ways to, to feed people the things that they enjoy at a price point that they're willing to pay. Um, I think it's an exciting time to be a part of food and ag. And then I think the amount of investment money that's flowing into food and ag has been really interesting to watch over the past decade, really. Um, a lot of the startup Silicon Valley venture capital type of money has really been finding its way into the food and ag space. And that's bringing people into the sector. I think some of that is, you know, looked upon with skepticism by people within ag. And I, I share some of that skepticism because all these folks don't really understand that much about the production side of our business. But at the same time, they're bringing new ideas, they're bringing new money, new capital to these problems. Uh, a lot of them will fail, but some of them will succeed. And, and, um, so I think that's an exciting time. I'd, I'd much rather live in a world where people are wanting to invest in my sector than they're not, uh, even though my, you know, some of those, those investments are going to fail. And so I, I, those are the things that I find to be pretty uh, optimistic is um, the science and technology innovation that we're seeing right now and the ability and willingness of folks outside the sector to put their money into the sector and see where it goes. I think definitely if you're willing, we'll schedule a future interview with you and get a little bit more in depth on those because I think your book looks fascinating and, uh, you know, encourage people to pick it up and, and take a look at it. And, and maybe we can talk about that in a future episode. Yeah. Well, thanks, Jason and Preston. I really enjoyed the conversation. I hope we can do it again. Yeah. Hey, Jason, real quick. Uh, is there a place folks who want to learn more about you um, can go to find, obviously we'll link your book in the show notes and your website. Do you have a social media press presence or anything like that you'd like to plug? Sure. The best place is, is my own webpage. It's just my name. And I do have a Y in my name, uh, Jason, J-A-Y-S-O-N and L-U-S-K.com. So JasonLust.com. And I normally will post the things that I'm, I'm doing and thinking there um, on Twitter, it's just my name again, at Jason Lusk, and then um, at Purdue, the Center for Food Demand Analysis and Sustainability is one I'd encourage people to go to. There, we're regularly posting every month our new survey results show up uh, on that webpage. We call that survey the Consumer Food Insights Survey, and then we're, work we're working on a lot of new data products to bring uh, even timelier data to bear on what's happening in terms of the food spending and, and retail food prices. Uh, in some of our data dashboards. So I think that would be a website I'd encourage folks to check out as well. Sounds great. Well, Jason, it's been a pleasure. We appreciate your time here today. The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the program hosts or their employer.